We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7 today. My question for us this morning is, is there anything that is secure? Anything in this world that is dependable or absolute? I don't know about you, but over the last few years, that question has been one that has felt like it's hard to answer. It seems as though peace might be secure, but as we have seen, war can break out at any moment, and there can be the threat of nuclear war. Peace feels like it's not secure. Our money, does our money feel secure? Probably it feels a little bit more secure if you think about uh, the idea of hiding cash under a mattress, right? Like, it feels like, ah, our money's more secure than that, right? Like, but maybe not. Our money is sort of just out there in electronic numbers and with the ability to hack different institutions. What if it just disappears? Is it really secure? Is uh, my life secure? One of the things that the COVID pandemic has shown is actually how fragile we really are. Yes, how resilient we are as a people to adapt to different things, and yet also how incredibly fragile life is. Is there anything that can be said to be confidently secured? If so, where can we find that? How can we have that? Well, this is Holy Week, and uh, last week we learned about what it means that that God had given the most holy place in the tabernacle. We've been walking through the book of Exodus, and so we were looking at the way in which the most holy place was constructed in the tabernacle and what it meant for the God of all glory in his holiness to come near to a sinful people. And that both we saw the glory of God in his holiness and the intimacy of God in forgiving sin right there in the most holy place. Because right at the center of the most holy place was the place in which the uh, high priest would offer atonement, would offer sacrifice for sins. On Friday, we learned about how the death of Jesus opened this most holy place. How the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom as Jesus was crucified, opening the most holy place. And today... We want to see how the resurrection of Jesus secures this most holy place for us. How he secures this most holy place for us. So we're going to be looking in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, starting in verse 23 this morning. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. 
This brings to mind all of the things that we talked about about what the priesthood meant for Israel. What it meant that Israel needed this uh, mediator between them and God. That the high priest was appointed and then he would be sanctified. There was a whole uh, ordination ceremony for the high priest. And then individually when they would come into the tabernacle or then subsequently into the temple to sacrifice, there was a whole process. Remember, we walked through this whole process in which they had to come and offer sacrifice for their own sins. And then they had to go through some purification and then finally could offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. But the priesthood was incredibly important for Israel. And so, for the, uh, those who are hearing the book of Hebrews for the first time, for first century Jews who have now become followers of Jesus, what would this mean? What does it mean when they say that the priesthood, this old system of priesthood, could no longer do this because clearly the priest would die every year, or not every year, but when the priest died, there was a new one that was needed, right? There was this constant succession. What does it mean that there is now a priest who lives forever? It says, Jesus, this high priest who lives forever. Because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus lives forever? Well, it means that Jesus on Easter Sunday rose from the grave bodily. Like he really came out of the grave. That's what this text means, right? Because Jesus lives forever, he actually was really dead, came to life really important that we remember this. The, uh, I think I have this quote. Nope, not that one. Uh, the common idea that when the early Christians said Jesus was raised from the dead, that they meant something like he is alive in a spiritual, non-bodily sense, and we will give him our allegiance as our Lord, is historically impossible. That's a quote from N.T. Wright, on his, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. You see, what the early church really said and really believed is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. He really did it. That's what they really said, and that's what we are really saying, that Jesus was really dead, and he really walked out of the tomb. Now, for a lot of people today, it seems like this is some ancient myth idea. Like, we're just not that naive to think that people actually rise from the dead. And it's not all that important, right? That as long as we believe in the moral uh, imperatives of Jesus, as long as we live as though his spiritual ideas remain alive, everything is okay. But that's not what this text is saying. And we should not be so quick to say that we modern, sophisticated people know any better. N.T. Wright goes on in his book to say this. What we do know, not because we inhabit a modern scientific worldview, but because at this point, all human history tells the same story, is that someone who is well and truly dead can become well and truly alive again. We know that this is not how it works, right? Someone who is really dead does not come to life. 
The Christian story about Jesus does not try to suggest otherwise. This point needs to be stressed. The early Christian understanding of Easter was not that this sort of thing was always likely to happen sooner or later, and finally it did. It was not that a particular human being happened to possess even more unusual powers than anyone had ever imagined before. Nor did they suppose it was a, a random freak accident like a monkey sitting at a typewriter and finally producing all's well that ends well, after we must suppose several near misses. When they said that Jesus had been raised from the dead, the early Christians were not saying, as many critics have supposed, that the God in whom they believed had simply decided to perform a rather more spectacular miracle, an even greater display of supernatural power than they had expected. This was not a special favor performed for Jesus because his God liked him more than anyone else. The fact that dead people do not ordinarily rise is itself part of early Christian belief, not an objection to it. What N.T. Wright is saying here is that this is not, the, the idea of the resurrection is not this claim that Christians have that it's like, well, yes, of course, we believe that people rise from the dead all the time. No. We believe that one rose from the dead. And the early church, the early disciples, they were just as surprised as you and I would be if someone rose from the dead. That's part of the whole story. It's not that this was always baked in, that we were, this was gonna be the thing that happened. No, even as Jesus told them, they were still shocked. They still didn't believe it right away. They still actually were like, no, I think these, I, nah, nah, he can't really be risen from the dead. That doesn't happen. And yet, that's exactly what they went on to proclaim. You see, what Wright is pointing out is all of our modern sensibilities that this sort of thing doesn't happen, we should say, absolutely, this sort of thing doesn't happen. So why did they say it did? Why did they say it did? Why did they insist upon it, even to the point of facing death? Maybe it's because they actually witnessed it. They actually witnessed it. And N.T. Wright goes on in his book to really uh, unpack every sort of objection to the resurrection, all of these other ideas that come about, and concludes in saying, the best understanding of the evidence that we have that Jesus really walked out of the tomb. That's the best understanding of the evidence that we have. Because really, the early church makes no sense if Jesus didn't actually walk out of the tomb. It just that makes no sense that this group of people would continue to proclaim even against everything in their experience that tells them otherwise that Jesus rose from the dead unless they really believed it happened. Especially because it's not like they were uh, facing some sort of praise from the culture around them in proclaiming Jesus has risen from the dead. They actually faced great persecution and harm. Also, Jesus is not the first first century Jew to claim to be the Messiah. He's not the first. There are many others that are historically attested to that claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, or claimed that they were the Messiah. Do you know why you don't know any of their names? Because they died. 
because they died, and their followers were like, well, that wasn't it. I'm not going to the grave for a guy who went to the grave. Like, that thing's over. He clearly wasn't it. But today, all around the world, people are celebrating the name Jesus. This is not some sort of uh, uh, crazy hoax that took hold and that spread across cultures, across people groups, across socioeconomic statuses, across racial and ethnic lines, across gender lines. There is no other explanation for the existence of the church except that they really, really believed that Jesus rose from the dead. The early church just makes no sense apart from it. The New Testament as a whole, and the book of Hebrews in particular, perhaps makes zero sense if Jesus doesn't miraculously and bodily rise from the dead. Now, here's, here's why I bring all this up, right? Some of you may be thinking, well, of course, that, that makes sense. We're here on Sunday. Like, who are you talking to here? Like, we're here to celebrate this, right? The reality is it's really easy for all of us to actually lose sight of how miraculous the resurrection is. To actually view it as a sort of boring, mundane thing that just was eventually going to happen because that's what was going to happen. No, this is one of the most shocking things that has ever occurred in history. Do we live as though this is one of the most shocking things that has ever occurred in history? Because what we do here on Sunday morning makes no sense if Jesus didn't actually walk out of the tomb. The pursuit of justice and mercy that we are trying to pursue makes no sense if Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb. Praying to God, thinking that he hears you and you actually have access to the most holy place makes no sense if Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it this way. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Right? Catch this, okay? Because it is really easy for those who claim to follow Jesus to actually minimize the resurrection, to minimize this and say, like, well, as long as we're living like Jesus and being moral and the spiritual ideas that God has given us live on, that's really what it meant. But what Paul is saying is if Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb, all of our preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. He goes on to say, and we apostles would, be, would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the dead, from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are, more to, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. 
It's utter foolishness. And we are to be pitied above all else because we have believed utter foolishness. That's right. Now the reality is, in our culture, a lot of Christians are really struggling with their faith and entering things that some would term deconstruction. And, you know, there's some good to what people are experiencing in this. We actually do need to deconstruct unbiblical ideas from toxic church settings that we have experienced, unbiblical ideas uh, from cultural ways in which the the church has been corrupted. We need to reevaluate things. And in particular, lots of this deconstruction surrounds white evangelicalism, which is part of the stream that we find ourselves in as a church. And so, yeah, we need to deconstruct things that we have inherited from that that are unhelpful. But be careful. Be careful that in your deconstruction you don't adopt Western Enlightenment thinking and theological conclusions that it inspired about the resurrection. Right? The irony of deconstruction often is it sometimes leads to actually adopting uh, in a, in a uh, move away from white evangelicalism sometimes ends up adopting white Western Enlightenment thinking to reject the testimony of first century Middle Eastern Jewish women in an attempt to not elevate whiteness, <laughs> right? It, it, it's ironic, but it ends up beginning to happen. And so we have to actually be careful and to think about, well, what the resurrection means in the scriptures. Because the direct testimony of the early church that Jesus walked out of the tomb. Not the right passage. Nope, I missed it. Okay, Luke 24, 1 through 9. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, that he would rise again on the third day. Then they remembered that he had said this, so they rushed back from the tomb to tell his eleven. 11 disciples, and everyone else, what had happened. Now, there are many good reasons to believe that this from Luke is really what Luke wrote, and that Luke was a historical person, and he wrote based upon eyewitness accounts, all those things. I love talking about that, so if you, like, doubt any of those things, let's get together and talk, because it's, like, one of my favorite subjects. So let's get together and talk. But the reality is, There are many good reasons to believe this, and one of them is the fact that women are the first witnesses to the resurrection. We read that today and don't, we're not surprised that it's written into the scriptures. But in the first century context, that being written in, like a woman's testimony wasn't accepted in a court of law. And yet the gospel writers write that these women are the first to see Jesus. If you're making this up, that's not how you write it. That's that's just not how you write it, right? The reality is that we 
can look at this and understand that God was, was showing us clearly as possible in the scriptures. Jesus really did walk out of that tomb. I think a lot of people do reject these things because they look at it from our current context and kind of read that back into the scriptures. Right? It's easy to look at the current state of things and be like, yeah, a belief in the resurrection seems crazy. Also, maybe a belief in the resurrection was a way for the church to secure some sort of power. Maybe you've heard this before, that the divinity of Jesus or the belief in the resurrection was really invented by the church at a church council hundreds of years later, but the early Christians didn't actually believe that. That's really bad history, so don't believe that. It's just really bad scholarship. That's just not how it works. That's not how it went. But I think some of the reason we do that is because we as the church have actually downplayed the resurrection. And T. Wright says again, what if the resurrection, instead of, as it is often imagined, legitimizing a cozy, comfortable, socially and culturally conservative form of Christianity, should turn out to be in the 21st century, as it was in the first, the most socially culturally, and politically explosive force imaginable, blasting its way through the sealed tombs and locked doors of modernist epistemology and the now deeply conservative social and political culture which it sustains. See, if we understand the resurrection properly, it should turn the world upside down. If we understand the resurrection correctly, it should change Everything, as Paul said. And the very way of life that we live should look like foolishness to any who do not believe in the resurrection. If the bodily resurrection of Jesus isn't true, does that actually change anything about your life? Does your life look any different if the resurrection would prove not to be true? Because our text in Hebrews says that because Jesus lives forever, he is able to save completely. He is able to save to the uttermost, securely, absolutely, without a doubt, he accomplished it. So that those who come to God through him can be secured. But if Jesus lives forever, I have the same question for you that the angels had for these women On Easter morning, why do you continue to look among the dead and dying for one who is alive? Why do we constantly look for security among the dead and dying? Why do we so often live lives that look exactly like those who reject the resurrection? Because we often live our life as though that tomb stayed full as though Jesus is still among the dead and not as though he lives forever. We pray like that. We enter into God's presence very tentative because we think we still need mediation. Like, Jesus, yes, he died, but my sin sin still needs forgiven more. I need more mediation before I come into the most holy place. And so when we pray, we pray small prayers Tentative prayers, as though God doesn't really hear us, as though God doesn't really want to hear us. But 
Because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever, therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. See, if Jesus rose from the dead, he stands before the Father interceding for you. So we should pray as though Jesus is interceding for us. As though the one who lives forever is our advocate before the Father. How does that change how we pray? We tend to fight sin in our life as though Jesus is still among the dead. Hebrews chapter 10, 11 through 14 says this, Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering he, made, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Good for all time. Forever made perfect those who are being made holy. We should fight sin as though Jesus actually died on a cross and God actually accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And so that your old nature, your old sinful nature is actually crucified and remains in the grave and your new nature walked out with Jesus. How would that change the way in which we fight sin in our lives if we knew that we we're victorious. If we knew that Jesus lives forever and God has already accepted his sacrifice as though the veil is really torn, as though Jesus said it's really finished, as though it's already accomplished, why do we constantly say things to ourselves like, I just can't get over this? I just can't move past this sin in my life. It has a grip on me. It only has a grip on us if Jesus remains in the tomb. Now, I'm not saying that that's not hard work, right? What does it say? Uh, that he forever made perfect those who are being made holy, right? It's not like you are now a perfect product, done, ready to go. You are being made holy. It's a struggle. It is a work. There are things moving forward in your life, in growth, in holiness. And yet, you have already been made perfect in Christ. His righteousness was credited to you, and it is yours. We can fight sin totally differently because Jesus walked out of the tomb. We still trust idols like Jesus is still among the dead. We look to relationships or money or our job or comfort, or entertainment, looking to somehow secure our identity, looking to secure who we are in the world, and looking for satisfaction, as those, though those things can really provide what Jesus only can provide. We look to these things like they are all headstones in a graveyard alongside Jesus. But Jesus isn't there. He left the grave. 
Jesus isn't among the dead. He has risen, and so you can now lay down your idols and live for the one who lives forever. Trust the one who lives forever. We so often love our neighbor like Jesus is still among the dead. If Jesus is still dead, if, if it was just this sort of spiritual resurrection, a resurrection of the teaching moral ethics of Jesus, why would I love my neighbor? Well, because it's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do because of the ethical thing of the uh, teaching of Jesus. Okay, sure. But what about my enemy? What about when it really costs me? What about with those I disagree with? What about not just giving my voice to love my neighbor by retweeting something, but selling my stuff to love my neighbor? What, that's a little different. What about radically giving up my life to love my neighbor? What if it's not the culturally celebrated kind of love like the early church experienced? in which you're going to face persecution in loving neighbor. Why suffer like that? If Jesus didn't actually walk out of the tomb, it's not worth it. We live often like Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb and it's not worth it in the way that we love our neighbor. The end of Hebrews, thir- uh, in the 13th chapter, he says, We have an altar from which the priests in the tabernacle have no right to eat. Under the old system, the high priest brought the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, and the bodies of the animals were burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So let us go to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. We love outside the camp because Jesus suffered there. Yes. We love outside the camp because Jesus suffered there and we are wanting to be like Christ to go there. But we love outside the camp in the place of suffering also because Jesus didn't stay there. Because this place is not our permanent home. Because Jesus lives forever. We need to pray like Jesus lives forever. Bold prayers knowing that the grace of Jesus is ours. So that we would not tentatively sneak into the most holy place to the very presence of God. But that we would boldly run into the most holy place as though there is nothing in between us and the presence of God. Because there isn't. If Jesus really rose from the dead, if he really walked out of that tomb, there is nothing separating you from God. To run to his presence. If Jesus really lives, we will fight sin like he really lives. Like our old nature is really dead. Like we are not held captive to the power of sin. Like we can actually pursue what is rightfully ours in Jesus. Holiness. We can do this because he lives. Because Jesus lives, we can live like that, laying down all of the idols that we cling to that are among the dead. 
We don't have to search for security among the dead and dying because Jesus isn't there. We don't have to search for satisfaction among the dead and dying as though it will provide any eternal satisfaction because Jesus isn't there. Because he lives forever. Because Jesus lives forever, we can love neighbor like he lives forever. Because Jesus lives forever, we can preach Christ to our world like he lives forever. Remember, we walked through the book of Acts, and what was so remarkable about the book of Acts, we see two two incredible things, right? The power of the Holy Spirit, which is indwelling believers now after Pentecost, and a belief that Jesus really rose from the dead, so there is nothing that can harm me. Do you see how invincible the church is? Invincible for love. Not for destruction, not for our own gain. Invincible to love others and to face persecution and suffering because Jesus actually rose from the dead. What can harm you? What can anyone do to us if Jesus walked out of the tomb? This is why Peter, on Good Friday, denies Jesus and is hiding and then stands before the very same people and says, he rose from the dead. And then they say, hey, stop talking about Jesus. And he says, I'm sorry, I can only speak more about Jesus. Why? Because he really rose from the dead. Now, what would it mean in this place, in this church, amongst our relationships, friendships, Jesus really rose from the dead in the way that we love and forgive and care for one another. And what would it mean for this city? What would it mean for this city if there was a group of people, not just at this church, but all the churches in our city, scattered around who believe that they are called to love and suffer for neighbor and are also invincible because Jesus walked out of the tomb? Like, what would that mean? What would it look like? Let's live it out. Let's try this out. Let's really live this out. Jesus rose from the dead. So let us live as though he rose from the dead. Because he does live, our assurance and security into going into the most holy place is complete. So if you're here this morning, and you're like, man, people don't rise from the dead. Amen, people don't rise from the dead. Jesus rises from the dead. That's it. Just Jesus. Right? And if that's true, it changes everything. So if you're here today, and you're not sure about Jesus, let me assure you that he loves you. He cares for you. He is near to you. You can trust him. And if you're here today and you are trusting in Jesus, let's live, brothers and sisters, as though he walked out of that tomb. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us that you have accomplished our salvation, that you have saved us to the uttermost 
Jesus, would you help us to live as though that's true? Transform us that we would live our lives as though you have really risen from the dead. Jesus, would you be glorified and honored in our lives? And Holy Spirit, would you transform us that we would be your people in this place? We pray in Christ's name, amen.